Welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy. And I'm Trisha. This week we join the Doctor, Victoria and Jamie as they face off against the abominable snowmen. We'll be discussing the Doctor, the companions, villains and give our thoughts on the story as a whole. We would also love to hear your thoughts on this story, so in order to join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, or you can email us at timetravellingteamp at teamproductions.com. Now though, the story recap first and foremost. Episode 1. On a windswept mountain ledge, a man resting in a tent is alerted to the sound of nearby screams from his colleague. He grabs a rifle and heads outside to find his friend, but after locating the source of the screaming, he runs away in terror as somebody grabs his gun and tears it to pieces. In the TARDIS, the Doctor excitedly announces that they have arrived in the Tibetan region of the Himalayas. He gets the others to help him search through the chest of drawers for something he calls a ganta, but in his excitement he forgets to tell them exactly what it is. After some gentle mocking from his two companions, he tells them that it is a ceremonial bell. He finds a big fur coat from his chest and tells the others to keep looking for the ganta whilst he goes for a look around outside. Victoria turns into the scanner to see where the doctor has gone, and Jamie calls out that he sees a gigantic hairy beast before seeing that it is just the doctor in his coat. They eventually locate the belt and then go to find themselves more appropriate clothing to wear. The doctor climbs a nearby hill and is delighted to see a large monastery in the valley below. As he turns to make his way back to the TARDIS, he spots a large footprint in the ground nearby. As he's investigating it, he fails to notice a large hairy creature watching him. He goes back to the ship and he seems very scatterbrained, giving contradictory answers and forgetting what the others say to him. He then thanks them for finding the bell and tells them that they will have to remain in the TARDIS whilst he goes to the monastery, which is called Detson, alone. He goes outside where he is once again observed by the creature. His investigations eventually bring him to the tent of the two men from the night before. He takes a look around and comes across the bodies of one of the men. After the doctor leaves, Victoria expresses her boredom and says that she wants to go outside. Jim is initially reluctant to go as he wants to follow the doctor's plan, but she relents when Victoria says that she will go by herself. Once they are outside, they notice a fresh set of giant footprints. Jamie tells her not to wander too far while he goes inside to retrieve a sword he spotted earlier in the doctor's chest. They eventually come across a cave that looks like it could be a den for the beast. Victoria is apprehensive about going in, but Jamie insists on taking a look around. Once they are inside, though, a large boulder is placed over the entrance, sealing them inside. The doctor arrives at the monastery, but gets no answers to his knocks. He presses against the door, and it swings wide open, and so he steps inside. The courtyard of the monastery is completely deserted, and after looking around for a minute, he starts to call out again. Suddenly, several monks appear from one of the side doors. They stare at him impassively for a short time before one of them asks who he is. Before he can answer, the man from the previous night appears with his head bandaged. He accuses the doctor of being the one who attacked him and his colleague, informing the others that he could be the creature he described due to the doctor's tick for a coat. The doctor denies these claims, but the leader of the monks, whose name is Chrisong, tells the others to take him into custody, and he is placed into one of the cells whilst they determine his innocence. The doctor mopes around for a short while before taking a look around to see if there's any way to escape the room. As he stands on the stool to peer out the window, the injured man appears in the doorway and mocks him about there being no way to escape from the room. He reveals his name to be Professor Travers, and then accuses the doctor of being an investigative journalist out to ruin his anthropological career due to his obsession with finding a yeti, one of the mythical abominable snowmen. The doctor tries to make him see reason by saying that whatever attacked the camp needed to have enormous strength to do the damage it did. This gives Travers a moment of doubt before he says Chris Song will find out the truth. In another room, the monks have gathered to discuss the recent events along with the fact that four of their order have also been killed, apparently by the once peaceful yeti. Chrisong says that he wishes to subject the doctor to a trial, as is his purview as chief warrior, 
but one of the monks tells him that only the abbot can make such a decree. A prayer bell sounds and the conversation is halted whilst the monks go to the temple. Refusing to be deterred from keeping the rest of the monastery safe, Chrisong ignores the advice of the others and orders the doctor to be brought to him. Back in the cave, Jamie is unable to move the boulder and decides to see if there is another way out further down the cave. Victoria tells him to be careful and he tells her that if she sees something then to yell out for him, a tactic she readily approves of. During his search he comes across a small pyramid of metal spheres. Suddenly Victoria calls out for him and he runs back in time to see a yeti entering the cave. He tries to fight it off with his sword but the yeti grabs it from him and snaps it in two before advancing on the duo causing Victoria to scream. Episode 2 Jamie notices a support beam holding up an unstable section of the roof and uses a nearby log to cause it to collapse on top of the yeti and bury it beneath the rubble. Victoria notices the mound of spheres and they wonder what they are. Jamie takes one of them with him for further investigation and Victoria urges him to leave before the yeti gets up again. Jamie says that it is dead but they look on in horror as it starts to move and pull itself out of the rubble and so they flee back into the valley. Jamie tries to go back to the TARDIS but Victoria says they need to go to find the doctor. In his cell in the monastery, the doctor is playing his recorder to pass the time when one of the monks named Tanmi comes to retrieve him. The doctor says that he will only go after some of his questions are answered and he settles down to have a conversation with the young monk. Tanmi says that the monastery is besieged by the Yeti, but some of the monks think that it is actually the doctor who is responsible, due to the timing of his arrival. The doctor says that every time he has visited the monastery, it seems to have been in some sort of crisis and asks about the events of the year 1630. Tanmi, amazed at the doctor's knowledge of their history, says that that was the year that the Ganta was taken from the monastery. In an effort to hide his embarrassment, the doctor changes the topic of discussion to Travers, but Tanmi says that any further delays will only anger Chrisong. The doctor points out that Chrisong is not the abbot, and he asks Tanmi for his help to return something to the abbot, but before he can show him the Ganta, Chrisong arrives with the other monks. They take the doctor away with them, but before he leaves, he signals for Tanmi to search the straw beneath his bed. After the others leave, he looks under the bed and is astonished to find the Ganta. Tanmi locates the abbot, whose name is Songsen, outside his prayer room and presents the Ganta to him. Suddenly, a spectral voice calls out to ask how he found it. Songsen informs Tanmi that the voice belongs to their master of their order, Padmasambhava. Tanmi tells him about the stranger, and Padmasambhava instantly recognises the stranger as the doctor. He then summons them both into the prayer room. In the main hall of the monastery, Chrisong's group is stopped by another monk named Rinchen and his followers. The two leaders debate Chrisong's course of action in not informing Songsen. Travers appears and the doctor tries to convince him again to see sense, but Travers says that with the doctor out of the way, he will be able to find the yeti unimpeded. He leaves and then Chrisong outlines his plan to Rinchen. The doctor will be tied to the main gate as bait for the yeti. If they leave him be, then he is guilty and Chrisong can then have him executed. If they attack, then the monastery warriors will rescue him before the yeti can kill him. The doctor tries to get them to rethink their plan, but he is left outside whilst the warriors watch from inside. In the valley, Travers encounters Jamie and Victoria, and he informs them that he has seen the doctor at the monastery, but doesn't let on what is in store for them if they go looking for him. He starts off at the hills, but the duo warn him about the yeti, and he holds them at gunpoint and insists that they show him how to get to the cave. When they then echo the doctor's statement about not being a press expedition, Travers starts to rethink his stance on the matter, and Jamie offers to show him the cave, but only after he takes them back to the monastery, a deal that he readily agrees to. In the prayer room, Padma Sambhava tells Tanmi that the doctor is a great friend and instructs him to go tell Chrisong to release him. However, he tells him to say that it was Songsen who gave the order and that he is not to mention anything about himself or the prayer room. After Tanmi leaves the room, he stops momentarily as if awakening from a trance. 
Once he is gone, Padmasambhava's voice changes from its serene tone to a more sinister one, and he informs Songsen that the doctor must not learn of their great plan. His voice then changes back, and he suggests that the doctor should be made to leave, under the guise of it being for his own safety. Outside, the doctor is struggling with his binds when he sees Travers leading Jamie and Victoria towards the monastery. He calls out for them to stay away, but they arrive to try and free him, but they are surrounded by Chrisong and his warriors. Travers tries to intervene to clear up the misunderstanding, but he is ignored. Suddenly, Tanmi arrives and informs Chrisong of his orders and the fact that the doctor brought back the Ganta. He is released, and when questioned by Chrisong as to why he didn't speak up sooner, the doctor says that he had already decided on his guilt and would probably not be prepared to hear the story of the Ganta. Once they go back inside, Jamie shows him the sphere and tells him about the cave. Travers and the Doctor are keen to investigate the cave to see if it has anything to do with the sudden change in behaviour of the Yetis. Suddenly, one of the monks calls out for Chrisong, and they all go to the door where they see a group of Yetis prowling around outside the monastery. Travers is in awe of them and is not too keen on the idea of coming to blows with them. The Doctor asks Chrisong to try and capture one of them if they do attack the monastery, and Jamie says that he has a plan that could work. However, the Doctor is not too confident in Jamie's ideas and takes Victoria with him before Jamie has a chance to speak. In his quarters, Songsen is reassuring the other monks that all will be well now that the Ganta has been returned. The Doctor and Victoria arrive and are greeted by the thankful Songsen. Back at the entrance, one of the Yetis approaches and Jamie's trap is sprung when it steps into a hidden net in the doorway. The monks haul on the net and attempt to beat the Yeti into submission but end up killing it by accident. Jamie notices that the other Yetis don't seem intent on attacking and so he instructs the monks to bring the body inside. As they are doing so, they fail to notice another of the metal spheres on the ground nearby, which slowly starts to move away from the monastery. The body is brought to the doctor and he reveals it to be some sort of robot. His examination reveals a spherical hollow in the centre of the yeti where something appears to be missing. Outside, the sphere starts to emit a beeping sound that is echoed by the one that Jamie brought back, which begins to move from its resting place in the main hall down towards the room with the captured yeti. Episode 3 the doctor deduces that the hollow is a housing for the control unit of the Yeti, and he says that he and Jamie should look for it outside. Chrisong refuses to let them go outside, as he is reluctant to trust any stranger until the reason for the attacks on the monastery is revealed. He tells Tommy to keep them under guard, and he then leaves. Travers follows after him under the guise of retiring to bed, and insists to him that the real Yeti must be hiding for safety up in the hills. He wants to try and go and find them, but Chrisong refuses to let him go. Back in the examination room, Jamie and the doctor are trying to get Tanmi to assist him in recovering this control unit, but he says that he can't go against Chrisong's instructions. Victoria then draws their attention to the fact that the hollow could fit the sphere that Jamie found. The doctor says that he thought of that, but the sphere seemed to be too light. However, he asks Jamie to hand him the sphere, only to be reminded that he left it in the main hall. Tanmi lets them go and search for it, but when they arrive at the courtyard, they fail to see it moving slowly away. Instead, they go to ask the guard about it, but he says that he saw no one take anything from the room. He then informs them that Travers has gone outside after being given permission by Chrisong, and they realise that he tricked the guard and that he could have taken it. James says that he will go and search for Travers' room, whilst the others go to tell Chrisong. As they leave, Victoria comments that the sphere couldn't have moved by itself, just as it makes its way down towards the examination room. In the examination room, Rinchen and another monk are discussing the strange physical nature of the Yeti and how best to contain it. They are about to leave when Songsen and Chrisong arrive, and Rinchen berates Chrisong for allowing the creature to be brought inside the monastery. Chrisong and Songsen discuss Chrisong's methods of defending the monastery, saying that it goes against the peaceful ethos of their order. However, Chrisong says that he will be willing to do anything to defend his fellow monks and their home. Songsen says that he must go and converse with Padma Sambhava and leaves just before the doctor arrives, who tells Chrisong what Travis has done. Chrisong tells the doctor to follow him, but it is not for his help, but rather to keep an eye on him. 
After they leave, Tanmi and Victoria spot Sangsen in an alcove communing with Padma Sambhava whilst in a trance. Sangsen then moves away after being summoned to the prayer room. Victoria says that they should follow him, but Tanmi angrily tells her that no one is allowed into the prayer room. Victoria manages to give him the slip and follows down after Sangsen. He catches up with her at the prayer room and proceeds to give out to her, but she counters by asking if he is not the slightest bit curious about the forbidden room. He is adamant in his denials, and Victoria agrees to leave for now. Back at the entrance, Jamie meets Chris Song and the doctor and tells him that he has found nothing in Traveller's room. The two travellers again appeal to him to be left to go outside to search for the control unit. After a few moments of contemplation, Chris Song says that he will go instead and leaves the monastery. Elsewhere, a clawed hand is moving miniature figures of yetis across a board representing the valley and the monastery, with the beeping sound of the spheres filling the room. Outside the hills, an actual yeti mimics the movements of its miniature counterpart under the watchful eye of Travers, who is hiding behind a nearby rock. In the prayer room, Sangsen and Padma Samava are discussing the doctor's potential interference, and Padma Samava's tone switches to the more hostile one as he says that he will stop him from interfering further. It is then revealed that he is the one using the board as he moves two of the yeti to the monastery. Their real-life counterparts approach the monastery gate just as Chris Song locates the sphere. He ignores the warnings of the doctor and the others and attempts to retrieve the sphere. However, the yeti attack him, wounding him, and take the sphere away. Jamie and the guard help him back inside whilst the doctor comments that the yeti only wanted the sphere. Chris Song tells him about the beeping herd coming from it and the doctor realises it is most likely a signal beacon, which he can track using equipment from the TARDIS. Chris Song lets them go, announcing that he trusts them to help the monastery. In the prayer room, Padma Sambhava gives Sang Sen a small crystal pyramid to take to the cave in the hills so that it can be used to prepare for the arrival of the Great Intelligence, whereby it will take on physical form. Sang Sen then departs for the caves. Victoria and Tommy arrive back at the examination room, just as Rin Chen arrives to tell him that Chris Song wants him. Tommy asks Rin Chen to look after Victoria, and he tells her that her friends are alright, but he doesn't inform her that they have gone back to the TARDIS. Rinchen and, and another monk then leave to attend their duties and suggest that she go after Tommy. However, she instead makes her way towards the prayer room. Rinchen catches her and brings her back to Chrisong and Tommy. Tommy then takes her to one of the rooms and tells her that they won't lock her in if she follows the rules and stays away from the prayer room. She asks instead to go back to the doctor, but he tells her that he and Jamie have left. Tommy then offers to get her some food and once he is gone, she escapes from the cell. At the entrance, Song Sen hypnotises the guard so that he can go past. Up in the hills, the Doctor and Jamie come across three immobile yetis. The Doctor is curious as to why they are not coming after them, but Jamie urges him to get back to the TARDIS as soon as possible. Song Sen arrives soon after and uses the pyramid to activate the yeti, who follow after him towards the cave. Back in the monastery, Tommy discovers Victoria missing, and after finding out from the guard that no one left the monastery, he realises that she is most likely at the prayer room. Victoria enters the prayer room and is addressed by Padma Sambhava, who tells her to flee before she is found. She flees back to the examination room, just moments after the control sphere reinserted itself into this captured yeti. She then screams as it starts to break free of the chains holding it down. Episode 4 Tanmi arrives and holds off the yeti, allowing Victoria to escape and run for help. The creature manages to toss him aside and head towards the courtyard. Tanmi recovers and follows after it. Meanwhile, Victoria encounters one of the monks and he takes her to Chrisong. Suddenly the yeti appears and Chrisong leads his warriors to try and stop it from escaping, but it easily batters them aside and goes out of the door that Victoria and Tanmi order opened in order to save the monks. Up in the hills, the doctor and Jamie have paused as the doctor notices how quiet it is. This fact makes Jamie uncomfortable and he urges that they should get back to the TARDIS. As they approach it, they see that it is guarded by a yeti. 
and Jimmy wonders why it doesn't seem to be doing anything and the doctor points out that it is a machine that requires orders and that he intends to find out who is giving the orders. He suddenly stands up and throws a rock at it, much to Jamie's alarm. However, it doesn't react, thereby proving the doctor's theory that it is most likely switched off. He then approaches the TARDIS and the doctor then starts to tinker with the Yeti, removing its control sphere. He then goes inside the ship. Elsewhere, Travers continues to follow his group of Yeti and is shocked to see them link up with the group led by Song Sen. He watches as one of the Yeti hands the sphere that it took from Chris Song and gives it to Song Sen, who then heads inside the cave. In the prayer room, Padma Samava is conversing with the Great Intelligence, asking it how much longer it will take for its plans to come to fruition so that he can finally rest. He responds to an unheard voice saying Song Sen is currently in the cave with the spheres. In the cave, Song Sen returns the sphere to the pile and he then puts the crystal pyramid on top of it, which causes it to start glowing. He then leaves the cave and makes his way down the hill followed by the Yeti. After he leaves, Travers makes his way towards the cave and once inside falls to the ground in agony at the intense light and hum coming from the mound of spheres. He then flees in terror as something starts to grow from the pyramid. Back at the TARDIS, Jamie calls out an alarm as the control sphere activates and starts to pull away from Jamie's grip towards the Yeti. The Doctor comes back, but they both struggle to keep it contained. The Doctor then tells Jamie to put a rock on the housing of the, the Yeti, thereby stopping the sphere from getting into it. They then realise that the homing nature of the sphere means that the one they brought back into the monastery could have reached the inactive Yeti, and so they rush back. On the way back, the Doctor picks up another signal that says it could lead them to the main broadcasting transmitter. Jamie is reluctant to go as it could draw more Yeti towards them. In another part of the valley, the Yetis with Song Sen hear the signal and move off in a different direction. They soon locate the Doctor and Jamie and surround them. The Doctor tells Jamie to run and waits until the last moment for hurling the sphere away from himself. He then relaxes once the Yeti move off after it. In the monastery, Chris Song is berating Tanmi and Victoria for their decision to open the gates when Rin Chen suddenly appears. He accuses Victoria of being the cause for the Yeti's revival, saying that she was the last one to be seen with it. Tommy tries to speak in her defence, but Chris Song tells him to be silent, and after being goaded by Rinchen over his lack of control of his subordinates, he orders them to be locked up in a cell. Once inside, Tommy brings up the subject of the Ganta and how it came to be in the Doctor's possession. She tells him the Doctor is the stranger mentioned in the tales of the Bell's disappearance, and that he is able to travel in time and space. To her surprise, Tommy is very accepting of the tale, as he points out that according to their teachings, a monk of his order could, with enough training and meditation, free themselves from the earthly plane. He informs her that Padma Sanbhava is capable of this. Back in the courtyard, Krisong expresses his displeasure when he is told Sangsen is communing with Padma Sanbhava, as he thinks he is avoiding his responsibilities. He then tells the guard to inform him when the doctor returns, and he then leaves. A short while later, Sangsen returns and hypnotizes the guard again before going to the prayer room. Padma Sanbhava congratulates him and says that the great intelligence is beginning to take physical form, but he says that he must inform all the monks that they are to leave the monastery. When asked about the Doctor and the others, he tells Sang Sen how to deal with them if they return. Back in the cell, a guard brings some food and water to the two prisoners. Victoria comments on the funny taste of the water and then suddenly starts to choke before collapsing to the ground. The guard and Tommy lift her up onto the table before the guard leaves to fetch for help. Tommy initially begins to despair but looks on in shock as she sits up smiling. She then apologises to him before running out the door and locking it after her. In a large meeting room, Songsen is relaying Padma Sambhava's instructions to the monks, saying that the Yeti are too powerful to defeat. Krisong announces that the doctor has returned with equipment that could help them, and he states that he is determined to stay and fight. He leaves to go greet the doctor, and Songsen restarts control of the other monks, but not for long though, as the guard arrives and informs him of Victoria's escape. Songsen then tells the others to find her. At the entrance, Krisong informs the doctor and Jamie of what has occurred with the Yeti. Their conversation is then interrupted by the return of Travers, who breathlessly tries to inform them of the events in the cave. 
However, Rin Chen arrives and tells them of Victoria's escape and that the strangers are to be imprisoned. Chris Song initially refuses, but Song San arrives and orders them to be taken away. Chris Song objects again, but Song San says that they must obey Padma Sambhava. He then orders him to take his warriors to find Victoria. After they have gone, he goes into communion with Padma Sambhava again, who tells him that any monk that won't leave must be driven away from the monastery. He then tells the guards on duty to go and aid in the search for Victoria, and after he is gone, Song San opens the main gate. In the prayer room, Padma Sambhava pushes a group of Yeti figures on the board towards the monastery. He then senses Victoria outside and he summons her in, where he reveals his true face to her, that of an aged and wizened old man. Episode 5 Victoria apologizes for intruding, but Padma Sambhava summons her closer to show her the board. She is shocked to see the Yeti figures on the board, but Padma Sambhava hypnotizes her to forget what she has seen, and she then watches in silence as he moves four of them into the monastery. Their real-life counterparts enter the courtyard of the monastery and then split up in different directions. In one of the rooms, the doctor, Jamie, and Tanmi are looking after passed-out Travers. He comes to, and the doctor reassures him that he is safe. He tells them about the light and the sound that he saw, but he can't remember that it was in the cave. However, he can't seem to recall the pyramid, but he says that he felt an overwhelmingly evil presence. He then passes out, and the others start to discuss what the evil could potentially be. However, their conversation is cut short when they hear a commotion outside. Chris Song appears at the door and tells them about the Yeti running amok in the monastery and orders them to stay where they are to be safe. Jamie asks after Victoria, but he gets no answer. Chris Song rushes back to the meeting hall and apologizes to Song Sen for failing to keep the monastery safe, but promises to defend it with his life. A monk comes up to them and informs them that Rin Chen is still searching for Victoria as he views her as responsible for the Yeti attack. Rin Chen actually encounters one of them in the courtyard as they begin destroying many of the supporting pillars. He calls out for Victoria to stop the destruction, but he is killed when one of the Yeti knocks a giant Buddha statue on him. The Yetis then leave the monastery. In the prayer room, Padma Sambhava moves the Yeti off the board, satisfied that this will ensure the monk's departure from the monastery. He then asks the Great Intelligence if this will be his last order to him, but he gets no response. He then turns to Victoria and tells her that together they will ensure that the doctor leaves. In their room, the doctor is trying to triangulate the source of the sphere transmission when Travers wakes up again. In the courtyard, the monks are gathered around the body of Rinchen. Chris Song states that they need to leave and Song Sin informs him that they will need to find Victoria first so that he can bring her, the Doctor and Jamie, out as well. Suddenly, Victoria appears carrying the Ganta and all the monks bow down as Padma Sambhava starts to speak through her. He tells them that Victoria and the others are innocent and that they should all leave the monastery for good whilst he stays behind to cover their retreat. Song Sen then leads them away to pray one last time. After they leave, Chris Song tries to talk to Victoria, but she doesn't respond. The others arrive, but she only addresses the doctor and begs him to take her away to safety. When she keeps repeating herself, Chris Song tells them about Padma Sambhava speaking through her. The doctor is astonished to hear that Padma Sambhava remembers him after nearly 300 years. Chris Song and Tanmi go to join the other monks in prayer, and after they have gone, the doctor, mindful that his voice triggers Victoria's message, whispers to Jamie that he is going to seek out Padma Sambhava. In the prayer room, Padma Sambhava begs the Great Intelligence to let him go and then voices his concern that he could have brought about the end of the world by helping free it. His commune is cut short by the arrival of the Doctor. He tells the Doctor that he encountered the Great Intelligence whilst travelling through the astral plane where it latched onto him and has been manipulating him ever since. The Doctor promises to help, but before any of his questions can be answered, the old monk passes out after his heart stops. The Doctor leaves dejectedly, but moments after he leaves, Padma Sambhava's eyes open with a menacing glare. In the courtyard, Jamie is trying to get Victoria out of her trance, but to no avail. The doctor arrives and says that he has found out a bit about what he wanted, but Jamie's main concerns were Victoria. 
doctor agrees and he goes to her to try and break the hypnosis by telling her that she is safe inside the TARDIS. He then hypnotizes her himself and puts her into a deep sleep. He then tries to break her conditioning by convincing her of the events that actually occurred and when she wakes up she seems to be back to normal. The doctor leaves her with Jamie and goes outside to find Travers who is keeping an eye out for the Yetis. The doctor asks him to go up to the mountain to get a final triangulation point so he can locate the source of the signal for the control spheres. The two men then make their way up into the hills and they come across a pair of stationary Yeti. Travers volunteers to get closer to see if he can attract their attention so the doctor can get a reading on them. Back in the courtyard, the final preparations have been made for the monk's departure and Sang San says that he will lead one last prayer after he retrieves Padma Sambhava. The doctor and Travers return and the doctor announces that the source of the signal is coming from inside the monastery. Chris Song says that Sang San and Padma Sambhava need to be found and he rushes off to find them. The mention of Sang San triggers Travers' memory of what happened in the cave. Up at the cave, a strange viscous substance starts to ooze from the entrance. Episode 6 Travers relates to the others what he saw up in the hills and the others realise that Chris Song is in danger as he is with Sang San. Chris Song has caught up with Sang San and tries to warn him of the danger the doctor mentioned. Suddenly, Padma Sambhava speaks out and hypnotises Sang Sen, giving him a secret instruction before summoning Chris Song into the prayer room. Chris Song is told to leave his weapons outside, but after he hands them over, Sang Sen cracks him over the head with his staff. Padma Sambhava tries to break from the great intelligence's control, but it is of no use, and he once again instructs Sang Sen to take the monks out of the monastery. The others arrive, and the great intelligence orders Sang Sen to kill them. Travers, Tanmi, and Jamie manage to subdue him, whilst the doctor attends the fatally wounded Chris Song. He warns the doctor that Sangsen is merely a puppet and indicates the prayer room. Inside, the great intelligence laughs sinisterly. Tommy returns to the other monks with Travers and Jamie and he informs them of Chris Song's fate. The monks try and attack him, but Tommy calls him off, pointing out Sangsen's now deranged behaviour. The doctor follows on and confirms Tommy's statements, but stresses that Padma Sambhava is also under the control of the same evil influence. He suggests that they continue on with the plan to evacuate the monastery, but Travers says that it is just as dangerous outside with the yeti and the entity in the cave. The monks decide to leave, but the doctor resolves to stay and Jamie and Tommy decide to help him. Victoria speaks up to object to being sent away again, but before the doctor can say anything to her, Jamie points out that Sangsen has fallen into an unconscious state. The doctor goes to deal with him, saying that Sangsen has information he needs. Travers, however, says to some of the warriors he intends to go to confront the entity in the cave and he depart. Sangsen, after being hypnotized by the doctor, reveals that the Yetis were constructed by Padma Sambhava over 200 years ago to serve the Great Intelligence. He also reveals that it has also broken the agreement it made with Padma Sambhava not to leave the mountain. The Doctor then learns that the main power source for the Yeti is concealed in a chamber behind Padma Sambhava's throne in the prayer room. He then breaks the connection with Sang Sen and allows the monks to take him away. He then says that he will try to distract the Great Intelligence whilst Jamie and Tanmi try and destroy the power source. He asks Tanmi to teach Victoria the jewel of the Lotus Prayer to prevent her from being hypnotised again. The doctor then notices that Travers is missing and wonders what is he up to. In the prayer room, the Great Intelligence moves a group of Yeti figures towards the monastery and their real-life counterparts mimic the action, narrowly missing Travers' group as they make their way up towards the cave. They reach the entrance and see the ooze blocking their path and covering the top of the mountain itself. They watch as it slowly starts to descend towards the monastery. Back in the monastery, the monks bid farewell to the travellers and Tanmi and begin to make their way down the valley, bypassing the group of yeti that stand waiting for their next instruction. Inside, the doctor reveals to an incredulous Jamie that he doesn't know exactly what would happen when they destroyed the power source. He then tells Victoria to be ready to either help himself or the two boys should the need arise. 
Meanwhile, Travers and his companions watch as the monks leave the valley, but stay where they are in case the doctor does something to allow them to access the cave. The doctor and the others arrive at the prayer room, and he positions them on either side of the door. He then addresses Padma Sambhava, telling him that he knows it is actually the great intelligence he is speaking with. He demands to know what his motives are, but the great intelligence says that his mind cannot comprehend the scope of his plans nor his power. He then demonstrates his power by levitating a nearby incense burner, but the doctor mocks the display in an attempt to goad his opponent. His ploy succeeds and the doors open, but close behind him moments after he enters. Suddenly, he starts to scream in agony, and the two boys try and rush in, but Victoria stops them, citing the doctor's earlier instructions not to intervene before the time is right. Inside, the doctor slowly gets to his feet as Padma Sambhava moves towards him. A sudden breeze then moves the drapes behind the throne to reveal the entrance to the control room. The doctor then engages in a mental battle of wills with the great intelligence and manages to hold him at bay, allowing the others to rush in. Jamie and Tommy enter the control room and start to smash all the various pieces of equipment inside whilst Victoria remains outside to aid the doctor. This proves to be a wise move when the doctor begins to lose his control over his opponent, allowing him to move some of the Yeti figures into the monastery. Victoria dashes forward to try and knock over the pieces, but the great intelligence tries to hypnotise her again. The doctor leads her in the Jewel of the Lotus chant, but it is of no use. The doctor calls out a warning to Jamie that the Yetis are still coming towards them despite all the machinery that they have destroyed. Jamie then realises that he still has a control sphere and he smashes it, which results in the chest units of the Yetis in the monastery exploding. The Great Intelligence says that it is a minor setback, but suddenly Travers appears and shoots at him. However, he easily stops the bullet and taunts Travers by saying that he should have remembered his power from the cave. The Doctor remembers the pyramid in the cave and calls out to Jamie, who says that there is an identical one in the room. He destroys it and the Great Intelligence cries out in agony at the resulting explosion. The destruction of the pyramid causes the destruction of the ooze, which blows the top off the mountain itself. Padma Sambhava thanks the Doctor for helping free him before he fades away. The group celebrates their victory and the doctor tells Tommy to bring the monks back. He informs Travers as to the true nature of the events in the valley and Travers in turn offers to escort the TARDIS crew back to their ship. As they are making their way up into the hills, they come across the lifeless body of one of the robotic yetis. Suddenly they hear a strange cry from the rocks ahead and they see that it is an actual yeti. Travers takes off excitedly after it and the others continue onto their ship. Jamie asks the doctor to land somewhere warmer next time and the doctor responds by saying that they can never tell where they will land next. He then smiles as he starts to play his recorder. End of the story. So, now that has the story recapped, we're going to go over to the trivia spot to see what Trisha has in store for us. So, over to you, Trish. Thank you very much. So, the air date for the Abominable Snowmen was the 30th of September to the 4th of November, 1967. We have two writers for this story, Mervyn Hayesman and Henry Lincoln. This is the first of three stories written by this duo. All of their stories were done together. And we'll see their work again in The Web of Fear and The Dominators. They stopped writing for Doctor Who after a disagreement with the BBC over who owned the comic strip rights for the characters and races that they had created. Which, you know, we know that in the past, like, Terry Nation had rights for the Daleks, so... Apparently, there were some of their characters where there was open questions around who actually owns them. Hmm. Mervyn passed away back in 2010. Henry is thankfully still with us. The director of the story is Gerald Blake. This is the first of two directing credits for Gerald. We'll see his work again in The Invasion of Time, which is not for another while yet. That's for a good long while. Yeah. (laughs) Gerald passed away back in 1991. 
Currently, only episode two of this story still exists in the BBC archives, so once again, and people are probably sick of us saying it, but we're never going to stop. Thank you very much to the guys at Loose Cannon who did the recreations for the missing episodes. Yes, indeedy. So, (laughs) the Yetis, right, have an interesting look to them. I'll put it that way. Yeah. So... While most people, when they think of the Abominable Snowman or Yeti, they kind of think of, like, a polar bear crossed with a Sasquatch. Snowy Bigfoot. Yeah, Snowy Bigfoot. That's not the design they went with for this, right? So, in the script, it was never described what they looked like. It was just a Yeti. So, the costume designer, who is Martin Bow, decided that they should have a bear-like appearance and that they were then covered in thick fur. Do what they look like. Eyeless Furbies. Yeah. Yeah. If you took the eyes out of a Furby, which is creepy enough, uh, that's what you get. That's what you're left with. You're left with a... Yeti. And then made them like seven feet tall. Yep. Yeah, they're a bit creepy. Um, according to Jack Watling, one of the actors in the Yeti costume fell hundreds of feet during filming because like, they were filming up in the rocks and he mm. fell and they actually thought he was dead because like he fell so far. But thankfully, because of the foam inside the costume, while he was certainly dazed, he thankfully didn't die. And the costume itself saved him. Yeah, because I just like, can you imagine like the range of emotions that would be going through your head as you're, you know, like, I'm going to die in this fucking costume. And by the end of it, it's like, you know, I'm fucking invincible. We can't imagine they described him as dazed. And actually, in one of the, one of the sites, it describes him as inebriated, which I was like... That makes it sound like he was drunk and that he fell over by himself. I'm going to go with dazed, which is a slightly less derogatory way of saying it. Do you want to kind of reminds me of in Spaceballs when Dark Helmet, you know, crashes into the, the wall? It's like, you're, t- <laughs> you're okay, sir. Thankfully, your helmet took most of the blow. <laughs> so, Padma Shambhava. Sham, is it? Padma Shambhava. Oh, fuck it. Yeah. It's not that easy now, is it? I've never said it out loud. Shut up, right? <laughs> Padma Sambhava. There we go. Yeah. Um, there was originally a shot of his head melting. It was shot, but it wasn't used because it was deemed to be too horrific. And I'm just imagining like Raiders, Raiders of the Lost Black. Ark. <laughs> Raiders are, what is it? Um, the season finale uh, or the, the penultimate episode of the season one of Next Generation. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, conspiracy. Conspiracy. Yeah. Jinx, <laughs> Jinx. Yomiko. <laughs> so we've joked before about Fraser's kilt. Mm-hmm. And I asked the question of what does Fraser wear under his kilt? Well, apparently, when filming in Wales, it was so cold that he wore trousers rolled up under his kilt to keep himself warm. And that's it. Like, you know, he's wearing, like, you know, proper, you know, um, Himalayan attire like up on top and below it's pure Scott it's just pure kilt free flowing but like they even work it into the story where Victoria's like are you sure yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm fine <laughs> but at the end he admits he's not it's brilliant yeah. so something I didn't actually notice until I read it this story has no background music whatsoever it has the intro theme and the outro theme, and that's it. And like I, I, I think I was, 
I think it was in episode five before I realized this. And it was when you think about it, you go back and you're like, that's actually really effective because everything then starts as a pure shock, other than you know, like that time you know where someone just sits on a piano and just goes da da. What's I mean? Yeah, but I, th- I think it really works with the atmosphere of the setting as well because like the only music as such is the chanting of the monks. Yeah, no, I I think it works really well. Or the um even like, yeah, like you got the the beeping from the the spheres, like the only kind of audible stuff is completely environmental or you know story based yeah so deborah watling has named this as her favorite story possibly in part due to the fact that her dad is in it so she got to work with him so that leads us on to our cast so as professor edward travers we have jack watling father of deborah watling this is the first of two doctor who tv appearances for Jack, we'll see him again in The Web of Fear. He also appeared in the Doctor Who spin-off TV movie Downtime, which we'll discuss at some point many, many years in the future when we eventually get to its place chronologically. Mm-hmm. Like I said, Deborah Watling's father, and as I mentioned, I think, in her first story, she found it hilariously funny acting with him. Yeah. And particularly like his facial hair and stuff, she just thought it was the funniest thing in the world. Outside of his Who credits... His acting credits also include The Winslow Boy, The Adventures of Robin Hood, A Night to Remember, The Invisible Man TV series, before you ask, Anna Karenina, Fortunes of War, Jeeves of Muster, and Heartbeat. Jack passed away back in 2001. Chris Young is played by Norman Jones. This is the first of three Doctor Who acting credits for Norman. We'll see him again in The Silurians and The Mask of Mandragora. And I'll be honest... I've watched The Mask of Mandragora a few times, like, throughout this entire story. I'm like, yes, Hieronymus. Yes, yeah, Hieronymus. Yeah. <laughs> That's all, all, all I could think of is just, just Hieronymus. <laughs> like, I don't trust you at all, <laughs> just purely because of that other story. His non-who acting credits include All Our Saturdays, South Riding, North and South, Zed Cars, and You Only Live Twice. Norman passed away in 2013. Fon Me is played by David Spencer. This is the only Doctor Who acting credit for David. His other acting credits include A Farewell to Arms, Paul of Tarsus, The Earth Dies Screaming, Zed Cars Again, and Compact. He also passed away in 2013. Padma Sambhava is played by Wolf Morris. This is his only Doctor Who acting credit. His other credits include Emmerdale Farm, The Famous Five, Kidnapped, Crown Court, The Black Tulip, The Avengers... Zed Cars, and actually a 1957 Hammer film version of The Abominable Snowman. Uh, that's very... You know, I want, is it ironic? No. Coincidental? Coincidental. Coincidental. Yeah. <laughs> also, uh, I recognise The Black Tulip. I love that movie. It is like... A, it's like... It's a campy French version of like a cross between Zorro and the Scarlet Pimpernel. It's amazing. It sounds familiar... I have a feeling I've seen like bits of it like on like YouTube old TV. Yeah. Wolf passed away back in 1996. Lastly, as Abbott Songston, we have Charles Morgan. This is the first of two Doctor Who acting credits for Charles. We'll see him again in The Invasion of Time. His non-Who credits include Radio Cab Murder, Emergency Ward 10, The Day the Earth Caught Fire, The Avengers, Sergeant Cork, Dad's Army, War and Peace, and... I always get the pronunciation of this wrong. The Onadin line? Is that how you pronounce it? 
Um, I'm going to go with the one din line, yeah, because it wouldn't be the one din line. Yeah, <laughs> which is how my brain says it. But yeah. It kind of reminds me of that movie, um, that thing you do. The band want to call themselves the Wonders, but they want to be like the Beatles, so they spell themselves O-N-E, but everyone just calls them the O-Neaters. <laughs> Charles passed away back in 2000. And all of, all of the movies that I recognise there, The uh, Black Tulip and The Adventures of Robin Hood, I cannot place the two lads in it at all. <laughs> <laughs> Can you place Charles Morgan in Dad's Army? You're a Dad's Army fan, aren't you? I am a big Dad's Army fan. Um, I would need... I have a feeling that he might have something to do with um, the East, Eastscape platoon. Um, <laughs> but any more than that, do you want to go do? I'm just going to check it up there. Hold on a second. Because I feel like I should know who he is in it. Um, no, I don't recognise him. Yeah, <laughs> After all that, the answer is no. Yeah, no, don't know. I know the I know the episode where the guys they all wear hair dye that runs in the rain because they're they're trying to make themselves look younger. Uh, but I yeah, I remember the episode, but not him. No, I'm just remembering the episode of Mash where Hawkeye goes to. Um, the sort of war council thing hmm. and he's like slowly losing his mind and then when he comes back everyone's dyed their clothes red <laughs> and dyed their hair red <laughs> that one doesn't ring a bell of all the F- mash well, seriously stuff. it's really yeah. brilliant <laughs> like, I, I'm gonna do a mash run through during the summer cause, like, you've got it, Hot Lips as a redhead it's brilliant I think it's the one where Hot Lips find out that she um, that her husband was leaving her it's where they have the thing where he's kicking a can in one direction and she's kicking a can in the other direction. It's where they change how many points you need to leave Korea. It's ringing a bell, but I can't. I just can't. It's been so long since I've seen most of MASH that, um, yeah, I'll, event, I'll get, eventually get there. Yeah, we've gone off on a weird tangent. Yeah. <laughs> it's MASH. MASH is wonderful. MASH is fabulous. <laughs> that one, the sultry bitch with the fire in her eyes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So thank you very much for another wonderful trivia, a tangential trivia spot. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder these things are two hours versus our initially. Ah, oh, they're going to take an hour and a half you know, at most. Well, now I feel bad because I kind of want to go back now and redo all the other episodes where we were deliberately like cutting ourselves short. <laughs> short. <laughs> do you Since like now a, we apparently don't give a shit. Do you like a, do you like a director's cut shot? Like, you know, what is it? Like everything up as far as like the Daleks master plan, you know, just complete yeah. director's cut the whole way through. Which means we can't get to talk about Ian and Barbara again. We can redo the whole thing. Okay. <laughs> How about we get through the, the f- Snyder cut of the time traveling team? I think I think if we did that, like a lot of our listeners would possibly kill us because you know, it's just a case of like I want to get to John Pertwee. I want to get to. I'm pretty sure Paul would kill us, seeing so we would stop throat and go all the way back to Harlem. <laughs> possibly, possibly. Yeah. Uh. So discussion. Yes, <laughs> this is the main point. Yes, the the normal. I'd say the normal part of the show, which is we now will discuss the Doctor, the companions, both, uh, uh, sorry, both both regular and story based. Uh, then we will have our the villain discussion before going on to the our, overall. Our the villain. What the fuck is a the villain? Our the villain. <laughs> our the villain discussion. <laughs> the villains. Of, the villains of the film. 
why am I broken? <laughs> I, I don't no know. Idea. You swear, you swear we haven't done this in ages. <laughs> this reminds me okay. of when you. This reminds me of when you absolutely broke. You know, during the recording of the time meddler, and I, I kept saying space helmet for a cow. <laughs> and I've just bought myself five minutes of free time. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know how hard it is to edit around the laughing? <laughs> but that's why you just keep the laughing in. <laughs> Yeah, but please, like, when you laugh, there's actually prolonged periods of silence, which I can't leave in the edit because it's just weird. <laughs> but then sometimes if I don't leave the laugh in, the rest of this conversation doesn't make sense. So I'll let Trisha compose herself and I will take the discussion of the doctor to start. <laughs> yes, please. Okay. You're, you're welcome. So this kind of reminds me a small bit of the web planet in the sense of like the doctor has gone back to uh, the site of a previous adventure that we haven't seen. Because uh, you know that's how he rec- do you remember the doctor recognizes that it's the planet Vortus. No. Yeah, he, do you remember that was the whole thing? Like, but Vortus doesn't have a moon. I've been here before. Like, and that's why he's so shocked as to what's going on. So here it's like we've gone back to the site of a previous adventure. Yeah, I think I think I think I blanked that from my memory because like I know he I know I don't know why because every time when you're describing it, all I remember was like, well, in the rescue he'd been to that planet before. Yeah. Oh, actually, yeah, Dido. Yeah. Hmm. Um, okay, go on in there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's also kind of funny as well just to see like him face the consequences of his like you know cock ups on <laughs> the previous thing. Where it's just like, well, what 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 calamity happened to the, um, you know, to the um, to the monastery? It's like, oh, the the holy ganta. Oh, do you mean the holy ganta that I was about to triumphantly return? You know, make friends with everyone. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> But isn't it established in the story, though, that he didn't take it? Padma Samvar gave it to him to to safeguard it because there were troubles when he was there before. Well, see, that's the thing. Again, it's super kind of, um, I won't say shady. It's not really fleshed out as to why exactly it was given to him. We know that there was something happening at the monastery at the time that required him to hold on to it. But I can imagine like a 300 year, 300 plus year gap wasn't really intended oh no i imagine he was meant to go back with it sooner but i don't think yeah. his initial taking of it was in any way bad but it's the you know i didn't really mean to do it well you still did it i know but i didn't mean to which is the thing <laughs> um but i also it was really kind of cool to again go back to like the doctor's mental capacity or his mental abilities mm. and like Again, I'm so oh, I hate the fact that this this story is missing, or at least episode six is missing, because I would have loved to have seen Patrick Trout act out like the mental toll, you know. Because mm. we again going back, we saw William Hartnell do it when in the battle of uh, with Wotan over the phone, and like we know that Patrick Trout is a fantastic, you know, facial, facial act- actor. Facial yeah. actor. I would have loved to have seen that. Um, and even if we do get an animated version of it, it still won't do it the full justice that that scene should uh, be given. The like also, um, I really enjoy his interactions with Victoria, which is the sort of like the um, you know I've just inherited a, like a a teenage daughter, like I've just adopted a teenage daughter. That's just like you know you can't tell me what to do. I refuse to be put by the wayside, and he's just like, okay, fair enough. <laughs> Uh, I no, I really enjoyed his relationship with Victoria in this one. Even though, yes, like he is kind of trying to cart her off to the side for her own protection, he ends up relying on her as sort of an ace in the hole. Uh, at the end of the story, um, 
but no, I think another solid performance here from Troughton. I think especially it's like with uh, with Chris Song, uh, that he never treats Chris Song as an adversary, just a misguided, you know, potential ally. Mm. Like that, we like because we, we've seen him kind of rail against people in the past that do end up being, you know, uh, on the side of the angels. Here it's a case of look, I'm you're just misunderstanding. If you give me a chance to explain things, then it's you know we'll all be on the same boat. You know. Mm. How about you? What did you think? So I agree that it was a very good Troughton performance. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of variety. There was a lot of fear and. Not as much anger, but dedication and perseverance. A lot of that. A lot of that. What what we like to see from Troughton is obviously his range, because he's such a great, like, so he's a great facial actor, and he can do a range of emotions that we we didn't see with Bill and stuff like that. Um, as per usual, I have a note mm-hmm. for the doctor. Mm-hmm. Doctor, I know you want to keep people safe, yeah. right? But wandering off by yourself. And leaving your companions to their own devices has never, ever worked. Ever. In the history of ever. In all of your times travelling, this has never worked out well. Particularly when you don't tell them where they're go- where you're going or why or give them any reason why they can't go with you. Yeah. Never works. Stop doing it. And I'm kind of saying that to the doctor of now because that never stops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they never learn that lesson no they re- they really don't there was actually two things in this that bothered me there was one thing i loved which i'll which i'll cover first and there was two things that bothered me the thing that i loved was we finally get to see this doctor using his hypnotism yeah i mentioned it before i really didn't like in the macro terror how he could have very easily brought ben out of it yeah. and he chose not to mm-hmm. and he put ben through all that trauma and it really bothered me at the time. And I'm glad to see here that he is willing to do that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it kind of leads me around to the two things I don't like. So the first thing that I didn't particularly care for was the way he spoke about Jamie's ideas. I was like, Jamie has an idea. It would be prudent for us to leave. It's like... <laughs> He's not some imbecile. What has what? Why are you saying that to Victoria, who barely knows him? Yeah, just think about mind that you. Is, that that is a bit harsh, all right. It was harsh, and it came from nowhere. There has never been any suggestion that Jamie's ideas are bad. If anything, he's very insightful, mm. <laughs> and his idea worked. So screw you. <laughs> Actually, just thinking about there, could this potentially be a case? Because we discussed it with. Um... The moon base. With mm. could this be a case of again the writers that are brought on not fully knowing the the character interactions or the how the characters operate? Possibly. Mm. Because my second thing that I didn't like was also a character interaction. Mm. So you said that you liked the relationship that the doctor had with Victoria in this. I didn't. Mm. Mm. Um it may have been intended to come across as protectiveness. Uh-huh. But it comes off as patronizing and more than a little bit sexist. Like, she was his ace in the hole at the end. Uh-huh. Not because he wanted her to be, but because of who she is in herself. You know, 
she want he wanted her to leave and when she was like i refuse to leave and then she's like what am i going to do she's like oh well one of us will need your help do you know and like the way he treats her in this it comes across as very patronizing and more than a little bit sexist which i was quite surprised about because that's not who the doctor is and i wonder if that's just the way i think it's very hard to write a protective older gentleman to younger woman relationship without it coming across as patronizing and sexist mm. um but i didn't see it as you know protecting his ward i saw it as a disregarding her completely because himself and jamie buggered off back to the tardis and didn't even tell her they were leaving yeah like what the hell is up with that and then with the hypnotism part did you get the sense that the doctor was obviously like oh we have to you know stop the yetis and we have to stop what we find out is the great intelligence or whatever did you get the sense that it was jamie who was like we have to fix victoria first yeah no i i got that sense all right where it was just like because it's going to be something that's very clear um kind of like, you know but as like we had with you know ben was about what about polly it's going to be a case of with jamie it's like what about victoria um so we have like the priorities i think we'll get into that in uh my story notes there anyway mm. but this is interesting now because i think again we have a scenario where we both read into the same point differently so but about the ace and the whole thing whereas like you were saying like that he, she was like going to have to help one or the other of them because it's a bit of an afterthought whereas i was kind of the fact that he got tanmi to teach her that chant that would protect against possession again that it was like we need her to plug a hole that would uh so that's that's the way i read it no i read it as she's already been hypnotized once mm. make sure she doesn't get hypnotized again bear in mm. mind he he didn't care if jamie got hypnotized because there's been no precedent of jamie being hypnotized the only precedent was on her yes whereas the better thing would have been hey guys we all need to practice this chant so it doesn't happen to us and also, to be honest, until it came up in in the episode, I was kind of half expecting that chant to never come back up and to find out it was just the doctor making something up to keep her distracted. Do you know that it wasn't actually a real chant? It was just something that he had Tommy make up to keep her involved. It just, I don't know, it just came across wrong to me that like he's protective of her and she's his ward and I get that. But the way they wrote it, and again, maybe it's because we only had audio mm. and a handful of stills, and maybe the physical presence would have changed it a bit. To me, it just came off as patronizing and a bit sexist. And it unfortunately it reminded me of when Ben and Polly left and his comment to Polly. Yeah. You know, oh, Ben, you go off and be an admiral, and Polly, you can take care of Ben. And it's like, I don't know, I, I don't want it to be, but I think it's just. I think it's men writing lines that they don't realize comes across as patronizing. <laughs> this is actually kind of interesting now because like we spent the better part of, you know, we spent 29 stories or the majority of 29 stories uh, arguing that William Hartnell's actions were not as sexist as they're perceived to be by modern audiences. Mm. But we're, we're after bringing up something there like two things now in terms of like you know with two different companions uh whereby patrick troughton like at least in you know to certain um 
I suppose to certain interpretations, is coming across as way more sexist than William Hartnell ever was. Yeah, and that surprises me, to be honest. Yeah, because like, you hear a lot about how Patrick Troughton is the doctor that kind of sets the, the tone for like the more modern, like, especially because like, we saw about Matt Smith, mm. one of the most popular doctors of the current, um, of the revived era. You know, he took inspiration a lot from Patrick Troughton. So it's like, this aspect of it, you know, whether it's not overly discussed or it's not properly or not, I'd say, more deeply looked into. And I'm curious now to see how things are going to turn out in ter- our discussions as we go on down the line, you know, especially with Victoria as a companion. Yeah, and like, I don't like looking into what people think of a particular doctor too much early on. Mm-hmm. Um, We obviously discussed how the first doctor is portrayed in Twice Upon a Time. Yeah. And how we both agree that that was an absolute disgrace. Yeah. Um, but I did see a comment on, I think it was on YouTube. I think it was that video you sent me on YouTube of that guy explaining with clips how the, yeah. pres- the presentation was wrong. But I saw a comment being like, if if they wanted to show in Twice Upon a Time how the Doctor used to be sexist, they should have used Patrick Troughton. And I was like, what? <laughs> Um, and this was after the Polly thing. I was like, okay, like I got defensive over that line to Polly, but it was one line. Hmm. And then we had this episode last night and I was like, oh, please tell me that this is just, you know, men not knowing how to write lines that don't come across as patronizing. Like, I really hope it's completely unintentional and that it's 100% meant to be protective. So... Right, I'm going to go back through my initial run-through, you know, 10 years ago of, like, these stories. And while I was kind of surprised with um, stuff on the rewatch, one thing that I'm kind of waiting for is that Victoria is the... She's the stereotypical viewpoint of a female companion, which is, you know, po- uh, Pearls of Polly screaming damsel in distress. Now, uh, watching Tomb of the Cybermen uh, last week, and here there's resolute you know there's like resolve and there's grit and there's determination and there's like kind of self you know kind of uh self-care type thing mm. but i've gone a small bit further on and like i'm not i'm not going to get into it like but it's starting to come case coming across the case of is there a sort of a thing of where like the doctor only really kind of is patronizing towards um females that he doesn't view as being like on this on a you know a good level of intelligence or a good level of whatever the case may be because zoe that comes in a while mm. is like a genius and i can't off the top of my head think of any negative interactions that he might have had or negative connotations that her character had in the stories yeah because i didn't get that impression when i watched the war games all those yeah. years ago because you and i would have discussed it if i had yeah um but to your point there i would argue that Doc Bill had the perfect example of that with Katarina. Hmm. Where Katarina thought he was a god. Yeah. And while he was very protective of her, he didn't demean her. And the way his education and protectiveness of her came across, it came across as education and protectiveness. Hmm. Whereas for some reason, this is coming across as incredibly sexist. (laughs) And I don't know what it is between the two. And... I'm crossing my fingers that it's mostly just the fact that because I'm missing the body language, yeah. that it's just the audio. Um, I, I again, because I see different rumours like that this one might be up for animation to come out this year. Um, mm. 
I there's been no be, release date or anything on it though yeah but I, I'd be I'd be curious to see um, how they draw these scenes mm. and then and when we eventually you know when we get to whatever story that we'll probably be in which will probably part of era we can then talk about the release of it kind of go <laughs> all the way back and we can discuss this um, but no like I, I think like again that's one of the kind of cool things about you know when we do this or why we do this is that like we we took a look at one point the concept of Victoria being is used as like um, an ace in the hole mm. and we've come away with two different viewpoints as to what that is yeah so speaking of that right we should probably go on to our companions so why don't we do Victoria yeah. first since we've sort yeah. of spoken about her so I'll go first this time if you don't mind um, of course, the thing that <laughs> I'm actually really liking Victoria overall Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't sure I would because again, I'd seen the descriptors online of she was very much the Perils of Pauline type companion, and I'm not a big fan of that mm-hmm. <laughs> motif. Um, but there's a few things here that I really like. I love her interactions with Jamie. Mm-hmm. Um, what I love is that she's only from a hundred years in the future relative to Jamie, but there's still opportunities for her to educate him. And he's protective of her. And there's this sort of nice counterbalance. Like she was like trying to explain to him where the Himalayas was. Yeah. Um, although kind of funny that she was like, they're in India, right? <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was funny. Uh, um, well, but, well she, she's like from the, the heyday of like... Uh, uh, explorers. Col- yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, British colonialism as well. It's a sort of like, you know, is this one of ours? Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I love is that like from the time the doctor leaves them pretty much until the time that they meet up with Travers, there's this constant coin flip between who's protecting whom. Yeah. Like, first you have in the TARDIS where she wants to go out and she wants to have adventure, but Jamie changed her clothes because it's going to get cold. And then, you know, Jamie is constantly wanting to go back to the TARDIS and like, oh, we should go back and wait. She's like, no, no, it's fine. Like, she's trying to drive him on. And then when, when they realize that it could be a person that they're avoiding. Do you know when Jamie's like, oh, if it's a man, I can handle a man or whatever. Suddenly she gets scared and it, it inverts and he's protecting her. And I like the fact that it's not just him dragging her along. Yeah. That like she has a lot of her own agency, which I wasn't expecting. Um, like you said, you know, she refuses to be left behind. Though she has her fears, there is always that desire to jump into the action um i didn't i really didn't like seeing her pawned off on tomney for like most of the story mm. like the doctor and jamie didn't even bother telling her that they were heading back to the tardis like rude um we see her acting chops coming back again you know throw back to last week yeah where she was screaming to distract your one we see it again and it's just brilliant because she, no one even needs to tell her to do it mm. she just you know goes into it straight away the there's two conflicting things about her in the story so the one is that like the ace in the hole bit that you mentioned right yeah my read on that was i didn't like how the doctor side tried to sideline her mm-hmm. but that her use her usefulness is exemplified when he goes into the sanctum he screams out and you've got the two boys trying to run in headlong and she's there physically holding them back yeah being like no he says that no matter what happens, we're not to go in. She has this amazing resolve, which is great because if that was a different companion, even going back to 
you know, Barbara and Susan and Vicky, even going back to like with the first doctor, I don't know if they would have stayed outside. I don't know if they could have. Um, And it says a lot about her that she did, that she was like, no, he said to stay. We're going to stay. And like there was no question of, well, again, we're missing the visuals, but there was no question of it. There was no hesitation on her part. I get, no, like I, to your point there, I think Barbara probably would have said, no, we have to wait for the doctor would say, but I think Ian would have talked her around. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that Darren lays the bit of the difference because, and this might sound very kind of, again, patronizing, which thing, but I have this impression that the way Victoria gets the point, like that point across, I can just imagine her in that sort of like, you'll stamp my feet, you're going to pay attention to me type of way of saying it, you know? Like, mm. you know, he told us we can't go in there until the right time and we're not going in there until the right time. Yeah, maybe. And again, we're missing the visual, which we're, makes we're, it yeah. difficult. Well, I don't mean like that she'd actually do that. You know, yeah, that's but the, uh, yeah. yeah, that's the kind of way I kind of get it in my head because like she's only been to be like, what, like a 16, 17-year-old girl at this? Yeah. yeah, so. The one thing I didn't like about Victoria in this, mm-hmm. and it kind of goes back to what you were saying, she's from the 1860s, British Empire, still a thing. Her curiosity is great. But it's not driven by, at least in my opinion, for most of the story, for the first four and a half episodes, mm-hmm. it's not driven by curiosity or observation of the current situation. It's kind of driven by cultural disrespect. Like, Tommy told her, like it worked out in the end, but Tommy told her several times, you do not go into the sanctum. We do not go into the sanctum. We don't go in there. It's against our beliefs to go in there. You know, only the abbot can go, blah, blah, blah. And no matter how many times he explains it to her, purely because of her own fucking curiosity, she keeps trying to go back in. Hmm. And it's like, dude, like, it works out in the story in the long run, but she wasn't going in because she thought she heard something about the Yeti or she overheard someone saying something. She was going in because she was nosy. Yeah. And she didn't respect the fact that in their culture, no one goes in that room. But it's, I don't even, like, like, you could even argue like that it's not just a cultural thing. It's like, because, like, going into the, the, uh, the sacristy, in in any faith, be it uh, any like Christianity, Islam, uh, mm. Judaism, whatever, uh, kind of a lay person does not go past that point. Like yeah. obviously, like I was like you know I was an altar boy, so like I went into the sacristy, that kind of stuff. Mm, so did I. They're not special. Um, <laughs> no, it's a room. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it, it's it's a it's a room essentially. That's what it is. Like it's like it's no different than a fucking G or a football train uh, changing room, but. It's it's kind of a cultural taboo that you know, like, there's nothing exciting there, but you still don't cross that threshold unless you're invited. But here, yeah, you can kind of get the thing I was like going, oh, like I could see where the potential uh, viewing of cultural disrespect would come from, because again, it's like, it, the fact she's like, but why don't you go in there? It's like because he just fucking doesn't just yeah. just accept it and move on. Yeah, do you know? Um, which was kind of the one downer for me on Victorian. Everything else I thought she did was great. Mm-hmm. Um, but that for me was the one sort of like, ah, oh, colonialism and empire, the impact you have on people. <laughs> <laughs> That's her Stephen moment there. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. You get one, Victoria. You get one. <laughs> Everybody gets one. Um, 
so for my notes I agree with, uh, with an awful lot of what you're saying in terms of like her uh, I was going to say plucky determination but she's not plucky <laughs> she's like I was like you're ever so plucky uh, no it's like she's very she's what? it's a talk of a condescending <laughs> no I'm just remembering from uh, like uh uh, the unicorn and the wasp you know I was like well, yeah. <laughs> Miss, Miss Nobody's the plucky young girl who assists me I'll pluck you in a minute uh, <laughs> no like she's very crafty in the sense mm. of like you know like again like you're pretending to choke and then was like you know Tanmi is like despondent and she just kind of sits up with that shit eating grin and she's like okay like I'm sorry to do this and then just dashes out the door um, no like she's very she is very crafty and she because of this now it is a case where Victoria's like, oh, fool me one, shame on you, fool me, you know, seven or eight more times, <laughs> shame on me. Um, she's definitely reliable and she's mm. definitely, like, again, at the end when she dives for that board to stop uh, Padma Sambhava from, you know, like, moving the, the things. Again, like, you just see, like, this guy is capable of, like, stopping the doctor in terms of, you know, battle of wills he's obviously more than he appears to be yet you still take that risk to dive in to try and save things mm. uh, when no one is around to protect you because the doctor is incapacitated because he's using all that the two boys are in the room and they won't reach you in time so like I think that's like to dive into that is very commendable you know mm. um, the <laughs> one thing though and it's like I'm actually kind of surprised that you didn't say it uh, but one thing that kind of really bugged me about this is I'm getting fucking sick of the whole let's hypnotise the female companions trope. I'm saving it. I'm saving it. <laughs> because there's a character that will eventually come along. Yeah. Where you need a fucking running tally. Now, I don't know if Victoria's going to reach... I'll just say that. I don't know if Victoria's going to reach Sarah Jane fucking levels. Um, no. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if anyone reaches yeah. I, I don't I don't think she will because again like I'm a small bit further on and yeah. no there, there's yeah. other, there's stuff coming up that we're going to get into nice nice fucking talks about I won't say debates because we'll probably agree with each other on them but there's going to be stuff coming up um, I know it's just like while it's there's nothing there's no malicious intent behind this hypnotizing other than for her to forget what she saw and to get the doctor out of the monastery. Because mm. I think that's Padma Sambhava trying to hypnotise her as opposed to the great intelligence doing it. Mm. Um, but the concept of just hypnotising the female companions to get it as a story plot, I'm getting a bit fucking tired of it. The other reason why I didn't mention it is because we've had three hypnotising stories. We've had War Machines. Yes. Macra and this. Yeah. yeah. And one of those was Ben. Yeah. Who, last time I checked, does not identify as female. <laughs> no, but... Um, but but no, did, did we have something... No, um... there was There was the web planet, but that wasn't hypnotizing Barbara. That was taking mm. control of her arm, mm. which was different. Doesn't Vicky get hypnotized as well in the web planet? Actually hypnotized, hypnotized? Maybe, yeah. Maybe she does. Uh. Anyway, so the reason why... I'm not getting pissed off with it yet. Hmm. And there will come a point when I will, by the way. <laughs> because there's only so much. Is so far, hypnotism has been integral to the story. Hmm. And it's not just a weakening of the character. So in the web planet, it was 
um, the animus. Yeah. Controlling everything. And it wasn't just companions. It was also the Zarbi and it was everyone else. In War Machines, it was how Votan was controlling everybody. It wasn't yeah. just targeted at the companion. Same in Macra. It's how the Macra were controlling everybody. And same here. Yes, we see Victoria getting hypnotized, but clearly mental manipulation is used on a lot of characters in this story. I think that's probably why it doesn't bother me as much. Yeah, I, I don't know what it is about her that's just fucking pissing me off, but it's just like, I'm just... I think, like, when you consider the fact that, like, from the War Machines to now, I mean, if I pull up our episode list and nearly fucking blind myself with the white screen. So the War Machines was was story 27 mm-hmm. and we're now on story 38. So in 11 stories, we've had three that focused on hypnotism. Mm-hmm. That's a bit much. Do you I know? Mean- I know, like that. Look, there's a lot of stuff in Doctor Who that re- reoccurs because it's just the way that the stories were written. But it's, I don't know what it is. It just this just bo- bothered me. Yeah. Well, that's okay too. Do you know what I mean if yeah. it bothers you? It bothers you. Do you know what I mean? So will we move on to the other, uh, <laughs> of the the other side of the British invasion. Yeah. So, <laughs> Jamie, hmm. he's afraid of no man or beast. No, no, no. Wait, no wait. He is afraid of beasties. Hmm. He. <laughs> He actually says it himself, you know, a man I'm not afraid of. Like, yeah. So you're afraid of animals, Jamie. Jamie, are you afraid of animals? <laughs> is, is that what you're telling us? Or giant fur coats. <laughs> or giant fur coats. Um, again, I love the back and forth between him and Victoria. I just said that there a while ago. Um, he has like a really keen mind, hmm. do you know? Um, his idea with the net was great. Do you know, I don't know when, I mean, this story is set relatively contemporary times, right? So uh, 1935 or 1937, I think. Yeah. So you still have a guy from the 1760s teaching people how to catch something in a net, <laughs> <laughs> which is just great. <laughs> I do like the fact that I commented on it earlier when we were talking about the doctor that Jamie clearly takes his role as protector of victoria quite seriously Mm. and when he needs to step up he does yeah in a big way um i like the fact that like you know there's the back and forth between them like he doesn't do it all the time but like he clearly wants to take care of her i sort of i sort of get the sense that like he's relishing in being the big brother role whereas with ben and polly he was the little brother and now he's the big brother Mm. but what i really liked was the fact that like she is the first priority yeah. To him. Because she is their friend and they are responsible for her. And it doesn't matter what else is going on, you fix her first. Mm. And I like that. I like the fact that like he was at least in my view of it, he was the one who sort of said that to the doctor. And the doctor was like, Of course. No, no, of course, of course. And like it's sort of you sort of realise that the doctor said of course, but then it didn't actually click in his it, brain. It, it didn't register. Yeah. Until Jamie actually said it. Which which I loved. Um for me I think it was a solid jamie performance there was nothing massively outstanding beyond those th- bits like all of those are things that we've kind of seen jamie do before um so there's nothing outstanding but i think it was a really solid performance with some solid interactions for him 
Although just on the thing there, like you know, of the of course. Oh wait, no, of course, of course. That does seem to be kind of another hallmark of the Doctor through Bill and uh, Pat, which is like that sort of like lost in his own thoughts, and then it's like, oh, of course, dear boy, of course, you know, just kind of coming back into the now after something is suggested. Um, mm. But I think that's this is probably like the most or the, one of the things the most recent memory where there's a companion's well-being at stake, yeah, as opposed to like, oh well, we need to get here before. You know, sundown, of course. Oh, yes, of course, of course. Yeah, that type of thing, you know? Yeah. Um, no, I I love that we get to see, again, because you asked the, back in the evening of the Daleks, will we get to see this whole thing of Jamie being, like, cunning and, ta- you know, being, like, a very tactical person? Would that play true? And it's like, it, oh, absolutely, it does here. Now, I did kind of have to laugh that the plan was, oh, yeah, first of all, throw a net over the thing and then beat it with sticks. <laughs> But it's a plan nonetheless. And it worked. <laughs> it the worked. The point is it worked. <laughs> it worked. Uh, in in Jamie's defence, he, like, he was maybe hoping they had something more than just sticks. Yeah. Like, he came out of the TARDIS with a scimitar. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> he was maybe something, hoping they had something a bit more, like, you know, pointy or yeah. effective than sticks. But the like, sticks worked. The- Look, look, yes, they have a warrior. Like, some of the monks are warriors to defend the monastery, but they're not exactly fucking Shaolin monks. Like, you know, well, how's he meant to know? Yeah, they're not kick flipping the shit, this thing into submission. But um, no, like, like, there is like that sort of shades of Ben with the what about Victoria type thing. Um, but I wouldn't even say it's shades of Ben. I think it's <laughs> shades of nearly everyone but Stephen. Um, yeah. Because obviously Ian was so protective of Barbara. Yeah. Like, would go off on entire adventures by himself. Mm-hmm. Purely because he had to get to Barbara. And I think while it can come across as companion in peril, hmm. I think for the most part, it's written really well with Jamie and Ben and Ian that. It's not that they think they can't take care of themselves, but it's like, you don't know what situation they're in. Do you know what I mean? That it's not, it doesn't come across bad. No, I, com- I, I, no I, I completely, I completely agree with you, but it's the whole thing of like, that that's, again, it's a, a very common line is like, oh, but what about, like, that's their first concern mm. is like, you know, where are the guys? We need to make sure that they're safe before we can go on to anything else. Mm. So like, it's not a sort of like, you know, oh, I've got the hots for this person. We need to, you know, look after them first it's the well no they're part of this group we need to find them first of all mm. um but no i agree with you like that there's nothing new here but it's like I, it's just a really solid performance i i would even say that maybe he's a small bit uh in the background here but again that's just because of the huge supporting cast which yeah the supporting cast in this is massive yeah like we you know with like the, the various monks and with travers and so on like that while he's still there, there's less exposure for him to kind of have something new to his repertoire. Mm. Yeah, no, I'd agree. And we've said before, they don't always have to bring something new to the table. Oh, yeah, no. Um, but when they don't, it's nice if the performance is solid. And that's mm-hmm. what we get here from Jamie. A nice, solid performance. And Fraser, in fairness, Fraser's been fairly solid the whole time. I'm trying to think of one where he wasn't. And I'll be honest, nothing's coming to mind. Yeah, But again, like this is a hallmark of the run that we've had so far is that look, we've had fantastic performances from both Troughton and um, Fraser, 
and as well their characters as well although here mm. maybe like the doctor not so much but definitely jamie going so well mm. so we have a couple of more than a couple of story-based companions here we have travers chris song tonmi and padma sambava good side yeah <laughs> <laughs> so and padma I, sambava himself not yeah yeah <laughs> the other part. so how i think maybe we should start off with the probably maybe padma sambava yeah, <laughs> I messaged you last night, mm-hmm. and I was just like, I'm so confused. <laughs> because, again, we've said this a million times before, I look at your yeah. notes, and I, I pulled the headings out of them. So I knew that you had him down as a companion, or like as a good guy, and I was just like, where the fuck is he getting that from? I was just like five episodes in, and I'm like, what the hell? Oh, like, I, I was so confused. But I, I feel really sorry for him in this because of the fact that he's achieved the highest honour that anyone of his order can obtain, which is the ability to leave one's body and uh, go into the astral plane. And this is his reward. He gets latched onto by like the most, like just like a parasitic fucking entity. And like what I really like about him is that you can actually tell that he is trying as best as he can to manipulate events in terms of in favor of like he's the one that tries to get you know the monks out of there via peaceful means he's the one that tries to you know again hypnotizes victoria to try and convince the doctor to leave he's does his best to try and stop any malicious intent towards the others you know Mm. and it's when he when he dies like there's there is like this huge sense of relief that he can now be at peace yeah, I did feel terrible when, you know, when the doctor speaks with him and he explains to the doctor what happened. And then, as far as we, the audience, are concerned, the doctor's concerned, then he dies. Mm-hmm. He told the doctor everything, and then he died. And then the doctor leaves the room, and you realize that the intelligence has just taken him over, like, completely, and was, like, mm-hmm. playing possum. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, just leave the man alone. Like isn't it enough yet um the one thing i will say is i do owe you a great deal of thanks because you warned me about the voice mm-hmm. um i don't know if we've discussed it in much detail in previous episodes i have a thing with certain voices that they're creepy and they just like crawl up my spine and uh, his voice was very similar to the uber creepy voice from the tau connection and your warning me helped offset it considerably. <laughs> there were still one of two moments, um, particularly like words like how and you, like all sounds for some reason, <laughs> were very similar to that other thing that you say that gives me the creeps, which also has an O in it. <laughs> Just to give people uh, like a context, like the voice is like it's echoing but haunt like it's haunting and it's slow pace and like everything is kind of drawn out and mm. it's like because it, again Padma Samba is an old man there is that very kind of ghostly spectral quality to it as well yeah I will say for people wondering why I keep talking around the voice that creeps me out totally I'm going to turn down the volume on my headset 
Paddy can do the voice and give me the thumbs up to turn my volume back no, up again. No, I'm not going to do that to you. I'm not going to do that. Are you sure? I'm positive. <laughs> okay. Listen to the Tau Connection in the Sarah Jane Smith series. Because, on because you will have to listen back to this in the edit. Oh, shit, yeah. No, good point. Yeah. <laughs> and plus look at you, you, always looking out for me. <laughs> yeah. In a non-patronising sort of way. <laughs> plus, as well, I just realised that I'm apparently owed a kick in the bollocks because of an adventure in space and time. And oh, true. yeah, so I'm not adding to that tally. Yeah, no, that's true. That's cool. true. Um, but yeah, no, poor Padma Sambhava. I, again, I want to see the previous story. I, I want to see, like, you know, whether it was, yeah, like, how far after the events uh, back in 1630, the great intelligence came onto the floor. And I, I actually want to see those interactions mm. because, like, you, you, you constantly see, like, a lot of stuff. Um, in terms of like where someone that you know attends like this amazing they go beyond the veil of normality and they're just you know latched onto it or suckered in by a malevolent presence it it, it sort of it reminds me in a sense of i'm going to get the name of this wrong is it jerusalem syndrome that i don't know so it's this thing where people go on i think it's i think it's called jerusalem syndrome where people go on pilgrimage to jerusalem mm-hmm. and they come back and it's like they're convinced that they were visited by God and that they can hear God speaking to them. And it's it's this completely fucking like mental thing that's going on with them. Um, but it's actually there's actually a thing called I think it's called the Jerusalem syndrome, which is about that. It's about like you achieve this, you know, amazing um you know this amazing opportunity. Um, and yes, you almost lose yourself because of it. Um, yeah, Jerusalem Syndrome is a group of mental phenomena involving the presence of religiously themed obsessive ideas, delusions, or other psychosis-like experiences that are triggered by a visit to the city of Jerusalem. Hmm. So it kind of reminds me of that in a way, but in a sort of science fiction I I never actually like with the exception of uh, maybe the massacre this is probably the most religious induced or um, I won't say induced but um, integral story Mm. because again we've got the the you know the the fact that it's his meditation because of his uh, orders teachings that get him into the scenario in the first place we have the whole we talked about the taboo of going behind the veiled curtain essentially of into the inner sanctum I think it's kind of cool um, mm. It's interesting what like religion plays into sci-fi. Yeah. Um. So next we have Tommy. Yeah. So I think to discuss Tommy, we need to mention Krishong. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So Krishong is not one for meditation and contemplation. <laughs> um. He's clearly at the end of his fucking rope. Mm. Like, there. From what he describes, you know, not only was this random. Englishmen killed, but like brothers in the monastery have been killed. The yeah. yeti that they have known to be these passive creatures all this time are now attacking them. Hmm. And you know, Travers comes in and gives him someone to blame, and he's like, Oh, thank god! <laughs> like, he like he just comes across as someone at the end of his tether who's just like, I can't protect them, and like. He's not a villain. He's just doing his damnedest to protect the people that that's his job to protect. 
but again um, like he's he falls into that category of people that are set up to potentially be a villain but by mm. episode 2 or 3 you realise that he's not the case do you know who he reminds me of and again harkening back to the massacre Gaston yeah yeah and but here I think he's a bit more like obviously there's much more you know impact by the doctor mm. in this particular story that yeah. I again I very I get very sad at his ending his demise Me too. Be, because he turned a huge personal corner in that he was willing to trust outsiders again because again like there's like you know like there, the doctor wants to save the monastery the doctor wants to save my brothers the doctor wants to save everything that his reward then is like to get betrayed like he thinks at the end of it he's like well he he realizes that no like sang is just a puppet but that initial getting struck down by your abbot is you know obviously it's a it's a shock and it's it, it's a very upsetting ending for a character that i actually thought was like turning out to be a great ally for the doctor you know yeah what i love about that though it, i i felt horrible for him when that happened um because again like can you imagine being in an order like that where you hold the head of your order in such great reverence hmm. and you're an order of you're an order of monks where it's meditation and contemplation and obedience they, they do mention obedience a lot and it's that head of that order is the one that turns on you like that must be so soul destroying hmm. what i love is that like how even when he knew he was dying and he knew why he still wanted to protect the abbot yeah because he knew that the abbot was being controlled hmm. and he could have very easily out of spite and anger and whatever said nothing or said like you know oh the abbot was weak or he could have phrased it any other way but he didn't he was very much still like doing his job right until the end and like that's why like when I was doing this, I was like, oh, I, I don't like having to put Sunset in the villain category because he's essentially, he's a puppet yeah. throughout the whole thing. Like it's just, it is like, it's like, oh, I hate that. Um, but no, like I, I really enjoyed Chris Lang. thought he was like a really, really good character. Mm. And I think Norman Jones did a fantastic, like, again, we've discussed actors whose like features are very harsh or they, they don't come across as gentle or, you know, compassionate characters. Chris Ong ends up becoming one of the most noble characters in the entire story, you know? Yeah. And, like I said, from the moment I saw him, I was like, hello, Hieronymus. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Mandragola. Uh, <laughs> but the flip then is Tomney, who, yeah. you know, at the beginning, is the reason to Chris Ong's madness. Yes. And I think by the end, we really see Tomney as someone who has mastered the delicate balance between contemplation and protection i think that tanmi is like a shoe in to fill in uh, chris song's role in the order yeah i do have one thing to say to him though yeah. one thing that he did that really irked me yeah was when he threatened to put victoria in a cell for no fucking reason hmm. it's like they wanted to control her hmm. so he took her to a cell and she's like, are you going to lock me in here? But he's like, no, but I will if I have to. Yeah. And I was like, how fucking dare you? Like, I know you don't see women all that often, but like, Jesus. Like, there was, 
See, Tommy is like again an interesting one because I like how he didn't. He actually wasn't a trope of either being like a youthful renegade who's like questioning mm. the dictates of the order, nor was he someone that's questioning his vows because like obviously Victoria is a very attractive uh, woman. That isn't this whole thing of like oh he's tempted to mm. give up the habit. No, it's like, I actually like that they fucking avoided that, but he's. It's a, it's funny to think, right, that you know, in stressful scenarios, people's negative negative qualities, no matter how minimal they are, they're highlighted at the worst possible times. Because up until now, like you know, we get to see Tommy as like you know, obviously, oh, he seems like the more rational one. But here is the whole thing of, as you said, um, like I like I'm gonna have to lock you up if unless you kind of play along. And it's yeah. just like like you know like you know that she's. Like, yeah, okay, she's a pain in the hole because she won't fucking stop trying to go into the prayer room. But there's no malicious intent there. So you know that she's not a malicious person. Yeah, like, he reminds me of... I'm trying to find the name of the character. Um, There's a book series called The Origin Mystery. Uh, the first book in that series is called The Atlantis Gene. It's by an author called A.G. Riddle. I'm a really big fan of his books. Um, And he also has a Tibetan monastery appearing in his... And in his story, he has a 16-year-old monk. He's the youngest monk. He's the only young monk that they've taken in. Um, he learns English. He learns you know, all of these things from outside the monastery. But like throughout three books and this like huge science fiction space adventure, you know, where it goes through like wormhole portals and it's a big thing. Hmm. Um, at the end he is still that monk and he still believes those things and he's still true to those things. I think Tomney reminds me a lot of him. Cool. You keep mentioning those books. I must read them. You really must. They're really good. There are two that I maybe wouldn't recommend reading at the moment, which is Pandemic and Genome, <laughs> which focus on a global pandemic and they're a bit depressing to listen to right now. Um, like they released the TV miniseries of Stephen King's The Stand during the fucking <laughs> pandemic. I I think you know the whole thing of playing it safe with regards to media. No, forget it. So the last companion that we have is Travers. Yeah, Travers, who plays a very long, like prolonged use of the pronoun game. Mm. You're here to take them away from me. You're here to see them first. What is them? <laughs> Like, their conversation goes on for like five minutes and like by the end of it the doctor's like what the fuck are you talking about who's they what the hell is an aluminum falcon For anyone that doesn't get that reference, that is the Emperor receiving a phone call from Darth Vader being told that the Death Star has just been destroyed. (laughs) Uh, That's from Robot Chicken. Uh, uh, Again, where you get your composure. (laughs) Travers is like... All I could think of was like he's like Shrek, you know, like uh, onions or on, ogres are like onions. They have layers, and I think he's like he. There's more and more layers peeled back off Travers as the story goes on, because first of all, you think like that he's like this fucking mad scientist that will just end up, you know, botching the whole thing, and then by the end, by halfway through, you realize that like, okay, his 
he's not out there for personal glory. He's out there to find the Yeti to see, because his whole thing was like, you know, but what about the actual Yeti? Like he even says this, Mm. like, you know, they're in danger. And you know, I I got the impression that it wasn't for like, oh, my name will be in the papers. It's like that, no, these wonderful creatures, they need to be saved. Yeah, like my first note on him was that he's very defensive of his work and willing to throw anyone under the bus for it. Mm. I think at the end of the story, that's still technically true. Um, Like, he does eventually come around and he obviously, like, he helps our heroes a great deal. And, like, he's in many ways, like, one of the main story-based companions. Yeah. But it is still about his research. Mm. Do you know? Um, And, like, his decision to go off up to the mountain to try and destroy the... A, his lying and going out of the monastery in the first place. And then his decision to go out afterwards. It's like, it's partially to help the situation, but also because he wants to find out if he was right. You know, if the Yeti are actually really these passive creatures or whatever. Um, so like, I think I, I think he is a, a Shrek-like character, but I think one of the layers that goes all the way through to the core is his work comes first. Yeah. Not in a success way like everyone's going to know my name or whatever i agree with what you said there it's not about recognition although it kind of was a little bit at the start um it's about the work yeah but i think that that focus on the work though goes right to his core though no no de- definitely definitely also at the very end he got to, he, like he's been carting that fucking rifle around for six episodes and he finally got to use it <laughs> I was like, how could you miss? He was six feet in front of you. <laughs> uh, I don't. Uh, yeah, like, I get. I, I think we pretty much said everything there is to say about Travers. Like, you know, he's very, mm-hmm. again. He's very. Like he's a complex character. Like kind of like Torment. He's very. Com- he's very simple, but he's very complex. In he, he's simple in his complexity. You know. <laughs> so now we have the villains, and yeah. we have the Great Intelligence, aka Bad Padba, Padba Sambava. Uh, we have Song Sen, and then we have the Yeti themselves. So, what way do you want to do this? Okay, well, I have I only have one note for Song Sen, really. Mm-hmm. I had several, and I deleted them all. Yeah. <laughs> I just left one. Which And, and they say it in the stories that he's merely a puppet. Yeah, oh, he's a complete villain of circumstance. Villain, villain of circumstance. Complete. He's like a textbook definition of it. Yeah, like, I had notes about how he shouldn't go around hypnotizing people, and blah, 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 blah. But he was hypnotized to do all of that, so <laughs> all of my notes are kind of a moot point. <laughs> One thing though that I would have liked to have seen is mm. I would like to have um, seen either like well, obviously Song Sen, but the actor get a chance to try and do something redemptive after he realized what he has done under the the control of the Great Intelligence. Mm. Like no, it it didn't have to be anything small. Like, it it could have been like a case of where he dashed into the room alongside Travers. You know, he brought Travers to the prayer room. Something small like that. Like I'm, I'm not saying that he has to sacrifice his life, you know, to try and save the others. But I would have liked to have just seen that redemptive moment for him. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I agree with you on that. Cool. So then we have the Yeti. Yeah. Uh, styrofoam rocks are no match for the Yeti. Nope. The fluffy furry, the fluffy furry murder muppets is what I call them. 
Uh, seriously, they're not that intimidating. It's probably the key point. <laughs> no, they're not. Like when when they attack uh, Chris Song, like the two of them like together, I get the impression that, that must be what it's like to walk through a car wash. Because <laughs> in some ways, they kind of remind me of jumping the timeline a bit. The mummies from Pyramids of Mars, who kill you by hugging you with their weird pointy chests. Yeah, yeah. Where it's like. I get they're meant to be intimidating and the slow moving creature that's always behind you no matter how fast you run it's always right there behind you type thing is obviously very scary but like they weren't that scary to look at and a lot of this could be because we only had one episode where we actually see it move properly. Yeah and that's usually them up in the hills like we we don't actually yeah. get to see a chance of like we don't get to see what the courtyard attack looks like. Yeah um, and that may have changed it if we had. But I think the whole idea of them being intimidating is actually completely undermined at the end of episode six when we see the actual Yeti. Yeah. It's like bounding around on all fours and you're like, <laughs> it's just a giant puppy. Okay. Uh, here's your problem. Someone switched this thing from good to evil. <laughs> uh, um, oh, that was actually funny. Like I would love to have seen like Travers like, you know, like just like skipping off into the distance, gun raised. I'm your friend. Because again, he still carries that fucking gun with him at the end. <laughs> Although, in fairness, I mean, he's going around the Himalayas. You don't know what the fuck's going to about to shit like. True. You know. Weird Highlanders. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a man dressed in a Yeti coat. Angry Sherpas. Angry Sherpas. You know what are going to do? Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're... They yeah, were they're... interesting in the sense of... the. I liked the idea of the miniatures control the big ones. Yeah. And that they only do something when they're receiving a direct order. Otherwise, they just stand there. I got a very sense. I got a sense of Jumanji as well, yeah. just from the <laughs> from the miniatures on the board. Uh, like I, 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 like I appreciate what they were kind of going for, yeah. but just the design, like the, yeah, again, like you just like giant. Uh, I was going to say giant furries. <laughs> yeah. you, giant kind furries. Of expect, you'd expect them to look a bit like Chewbacca. Yes, and they look like a giant Furby. So now we have the great intelligence. I Okay, I have a question for you, right? Yeah. So we know that the great intelligence has kind of two components to it. It has a psychic component, but it also has like a substantial component, which is that ooze. That is, is that meant to be part of the great intelligence? That's the physical form of the great intelligence. Do you know that from future knowledge or was that presented to you in the episode? No, that's presented in the episode. Okay. They say about it taking physical form. Okay, cool, that's yeah. fine. Uh, yeah, go on. So, I've a, so, with that in mind, okay, that we know that it has like you know, a physical form, which is like you know, a viscous substance. <laughs> um, do you think the Great Intelligence is just a, mem- a, a member of the same race as the Animus with delusions of grandeur? Possibly, because... <sighs> here was my question had the great intelligence succeeded what would that ooze have done I have like imagined like, it would try and take over the world and just become like sort of like ego from Guardians of the Galaxy yeah or maybe when we were talking about the animus we talked about um, oh what was it from Skin of Evil oh the weird puddle of oil yeah I've forgotten its name yeah um so I wonder if it was like that, hmm. you know, that it would become like that. I was also thinking like the river of 
Evil from Ghostbusters 2. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Vigo the Carpathian. Yeah, because like, what I love is the fact that like, the intelligence was woven into the story. The fact that like it was used in this monastery for hundreds of years with nobody mm. knowing. That's really interesting. And the fact that they clearly had to wait until the technology got to a point that Padmasambhava could build the Yeti mm-hmm. and could build the mechanisms and could build the control room. That I find really interesting. The problem is I don't actually know what the real threat was other than ooze. Yeah, like, see, because, because the overall plan is never explained, we're left with just here's the scenario here's what the scenario is we know that the animus wanted to take over the planet and become become the planet essentially because it was spreading its influence throughout the entirety of it whereas here it's like because we're focused in the one area and it's whole and but see i think what we have here is that the overall plan is um not diminished but is is impacted because of he's using padmasambhava as a host Mm. and padmasambhava is fighting back yeah, we were missing the monologue. Yeah. We were missing the villain monologue, where, where he, he where he could twirl outlines his, his entire plan, <laughs> where he could twirl his big oozy mustache. Yeah, um, I like I kind of like, like but like the animus, I love the concept of this villain. Like mm. and it, in subst- like it has a sub it has a substance, but that substance while you know may not appear as threatening, it can be all encompassing and therefore you get swamped by it. But its real threat lies in its actual spectralness mm. and I would have like again we're only dealing with like the, the host of Padma Zambava we're not dealing with like you know whereas like I again that amazing scene with uh, William Hartnell trapped in the, the tentacles mm. um, I, I, I really wish that this story survived because I wanted to see that battle of wills and I wanted to see you know the the acting done by the person that plays Padma Zambava. You know, yeah. to switch to switch from good to great intelligence. Yeah, because n- none of none of his stuff is actually on screen, which is no. sad. Like everyone else has something on screen, but he doesn't. No, and again, I would love to see the before story of like how did he present? How did it present itself to Padma Sambhava? Like, mm. did it just latch onto him and start taking over, or was it that sort of um, kind of like the Hobbit? You know, where like oh, like the necromancer, and it turns out to actually be Sauron. You know. Mm. For some reason, when it was when the doctor was talking to Padma Sambhava, I was like, "Oh, you went to the astral plane." I was just sort of imagining in the nineties X Men cartoon. Oh, the Shadow King. Yeah. 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 No, like, that's how I I can't believe I didn't. I I've had the Shadow King in my head for at least half of this podcast, and I can't believe I didn't say it before now. Um, because yeah, no, that would have been that would have been pretty cool. Because that's what I that, that's what I imagined happened. That, that's what I'm imagining like that's what you would think would happen but again I would love to see if there was some sort of like um, like is it that sort of thing where you say, or like I can hear the echoes of someone trying to approach the astral plane how about I you know give him a hand to fucking get me out of here type thing you know mm. um, but the because, because of the fact that he is both kind of spectral and substance based we've destroyed the substance but have we destroyed the the, the spectral Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> we shall see. <laughs> so we have done summary, trivia spot, character discussion, 
Now we're on to our overall. So in this section, we give our thoughts on the story as a whole and give our score out of five. Now, I have a question for you, okay? Mm-hmm. There has been discussion, especially in recent years, or even more so in recent months, over the racial aspect of older Doctor Who stories. Mm. So here we have a story that's based in Tibet with a entirely uh, Caucasian cast, some of whom are definitely kind of more made up to look more oriental. Like obviously Norman Jones and the guy that plays Tanmi, they just have these sort of oriental style mustaches. Which look really bad. Yeah, they they, they do. They, they, Tommy uh, doesn't have one. Doesn't he? No, the, the guard on the door did. Oh, Repulsion, yes. But you have then actors like that are Rinchin who have the, the eye prosthetics to make them look more um, oriental. What is your viewpoint on that? Just out of curiosity, if you have a viewpoint on it. Is is there anything in it that would make, that is kind of done derogatory, do you think? So this is an interesting topic. Hmm. And I read something on Will Wheaton's Tumblr the other day, which was um, this long essay about how Asian is not, quote-unquote, essentially white. I basically went into the racism faced by Asian cultures and how other people of colour don't recognise Asian cultures as being people of colour. They're treated as essentially white. That they don't have the same prejudices against them, apparently. Because they're essentially white. They don't belong in the same conversations as, you know, black people or Indian people because they're essentially white. And it got me thinking on this very topic. And with anything like this, or with, even with with the Song of the South, right yeah i remember watching that as a kid i don't know if we had it on video or what but i remember watching that as a kid and i think for me it all goes back to intent Mm -hmm. was the intention to represent this culture in a negative light in a derogatory way and in this instance i think the answer to that is no Mm. is it sad that they didn't have anyone more ethnically appropriate to play the role yeah Mm. and that's something that in modern life we're looking to address more and more in tv and film but yeah the story was made like 55 years ago yeah like and as we've discussed like uh, especially back in the crusade there was never a whole lot of opportunities for um actors of color to be given substantial parts yeah and it's like can we condemn them for it in my opinion, no, and I'm saying this as a white person, right? So, yeah. you know, speaking from quote unquote a position of privilege, right? Mm. But then again, I'm also speaking as an Irish person. Yeah. No blacks, no Irish need apply, right? Yeah. So, in my in, in my perspective, it all goes back to intention. Yeah. And there is a big difference between 65 years ago where things were culturally accepted and now where we have drawn the lie in the sand and said no yeah and to measure things from nearly 60 years ago by a yardstick that we still can't measure against today i think is a bit fucking rich yeah personally speaking but i also i also think there's a huge world of difference between this 
and the like, the Fu Manchu Hammer Horror movie serials of the same yeah. time. Or even like between this and was it Breakfast at Tiffany's? Oh yeah. Like intent matters. Portrayal matters. Like in this, in the Crusades, you know, never are we laughing at these people. Never in though in these stories in particular, never are like they treated as inferior or whatever. They're treated as potentially unknown or new or other, which isn't great either. But the intention is never to deride or that at the end of the story hmm. we're not meant to see them as lesser than in my opinion um and if there ever is a story where that is the way it comes across then that becomes a lot different like we had the conversation with the celestial toy maker hmm. right when i the whole time i heard the celestial toy maker i thought it was because of space yeah it's not until i read articles online condemning the character and the way the character was portrayed and the fact that in the sort of Asian get up. Uh, yeah. And I'm like, you're trying to measure a show from 60 years ago against a yardstick we still don't meet today. I think probably the most overt, and before we, like, we've kind of gone off now a small bit, but I think it's kind of good to raise these topics because they make for interesting discussion points. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think probably one of the, the one story that's probably the most guilty of this is probably the smugglers with the character of Jamaica. Yeah, like he was probably the most stereotypical fucking yeah you know and there's a little bit of that in this as well and i'll get to it in a bit but not anywhere near as much but then if you put that on the flip side 10th planet where one of the pilots Hmm. you know on this space mission you know an astronaut going into space was played by a black actor so you know it's oh no but what i'm saying is like that in every other instance especially like with the the ones where which are based in like historical contexts mm-hmm. there's always been like the positive sides of these uh, societies like we talked about yeah. the crusades like we saw saladin and like how richard viewed him as a as a noble person despite the fact that everyone else viewed him as a savage yeah. we had and he treated his prisoners nobly yeah. but you know whatever yeah and I, that that's it for me like i mean like I think this would be like a, you could talk for hours on this, and like again, yeah, you're, and you're you're never going to reach. I'm not like a, really qualified. Yeah. Is my thing of it like I support diversity, equity, and inclusion one hundred and ten percent, but like when I see online that like you can't watch Peter Pan or Dumbo on Disney Plus unless you've been, you're in an adult profile, I'm like you. you you're holding things that are decades old against a yardstick that we still currently today don't meet. I'm all for having a warning beforehand. Mm-hmm. That's fine. Um, you know, you may see things in the show that um, you find offensive. This is a product of its time. Yeah, I think the trigger warnings are actually going. Like, I think they kind of they ease things. But obviously, there's a lot of like, there's it's. I don't think you're ever going to find like a perfect measure for everyone. No. But I think the 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 trigger warnings are probably like the the best foot forward at the moment. Yeah, and like to to give an example of the yardstick that you know people measure against. Everyone has their own. Like people criticized Russell T Davies mm-hmm. for some. I can't remember was in like season one or season two of the like two thousand five onwards part of the show and people commented on like the language that he used was seen as being a bit offensive to gay people 
And it was written by Russell T. Davies. Yeah. I mean. And he said that he used terminology and phraseology from the time. Like that mm-hmm. that's what people said in two thousand and five. And like he like he's a very he's a very proud uh, gay person as well. That is like you know again kind of touting for the rights of you know gay you know gay people, especially gay actors as well. But I think was I think we can table this for the moment. But again, like I like having these conversations, especially in these contexts over when this stuff is raised. But the overall uh, component of the story. Yeah. So overall, I quite liked it. Yeah. I think the mechanical Yeti was an interesting idea, taking something we've heard, all heard, we all grew up here with the abominable snowman, right? Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. can't even remember where I first heard it. Do you know, it's so ingrained in us. I think goosebumps for me. The abominable snowman of Pasadena. That's very specific. Um, I I genuinely don't know. It, mm. It's just, it's it's just always been there. Do you know? Um, so to take that and apply a sci-fi twist to it, I think is brilliant. I, yeah. I love that. Um, I thought Jamie had some very good moments with Victoria and the Doctor. I love that the Doctor flexed his mental abilities. Yeah, that was great. Mm. And Victoria standing up to everyone and showing how she's not just the damsel in distress to be set aside. I fucking loved. Things I didn't like. Mm. The patronizing treatment of Victoria. Mm. And going back to our conversation from a second ago. The one sort of... Really? You, want, you decided to include that is when the monks were like the woman is a servant of the devil she breathes life back into the yeti yeah i could have done without that Hmm. that i think was unnecessary there's a million other ways you could have played that out of victoria was secretly controlling it or victoria knew all along how it worked they could have come up with anything they didn't have to have it be this fucking she's a servant of the devil women are evil it could just be like the outsider yeah um so i could have done without that and that we never really found out what the end goal was really like what would have been the outcome if they lost just world domination that just it's just a go-to yeah so overall for me quite like the story weird voices notwithstanding some positives some negatives i gave it 3.5 that pause was because I motioned the voice, yeah. <laughs> Trisha. Um, no, I agree. Like I, I enjoyed it. I did. Like I liked what they were trying to go for with the Yeti, but obviously the execution wasn't really that great. Um, I did like. Um, I I liked the the you know, the development from Victoria. I liked the scene. Like you know, we're looking again at the doctor's you know mental. Um, I was going to say faculties. The, the 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 mental side of his arsenal. Mm. Um. I do think that there was probably you know, some missed opportunities for Song Sen to have some sort of redemption thing. And I I think the uh, my kind of thing of the Victoria getting like hypnotized, I'm like, can we just not? <laughs> I don't know what it is about it, but it's just really fucking bothering me. Uh, so I went slightly higher. I went 3.75. Hmm. Not bad, though. Not yeah, bad. No, like, no, like still a kind of very respectable, a respectable score for the story, which again... Like, if you just look at it from, like, an outside perspective, it's just like, okay, like, the doctor takes on, like, the Yeti in whatever in Tibet, and it's like, okay, this is what the Yeti looks like, that it looks kind of fucking naff. But it's actually, again, it's the story of these characters. Again, a huge lot of that score comes from the supporting cast, particularly Norman Jones as Chrisong. Yeah. I think that he, again, he did that Gaston uh, role very well. And... 
both him and Padma Sabava and Song Sen all have very kind of tragic endings. Mm. Yeah, uh, no, they all do. Yeah, yeah. Which, like, again, is I think a, one thing about Doctor Who is that it's we ha- what was it? What, what story did we have where like we commented the fact that everyone lived? Um, it wasn't the moon base I don't think no because everyone didn't live in the moon base yeah the whole point of the moon base was people were dying <laughs> yeah or was yeah. it like said that every one of the principal cast lived I can't, I can't remember but no was but it it's the war machines no no but no like, it's just like this thing where like you know it's a hallmark of Doctor Who like that not everyone that you like is going to come out of this thing unscathed and here we have a great representation of that where characters that are actually really, really good, really interesting characters, unfortunately, they don't make it to the end or they don't yeah. make it to the end unscathed. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that was, um, I think that's a pretty, and again, we're kind of after the huge thing over like the faceless ones. Again, we're very similar minded towards stuff again. <laughs> Fucking faceless ones. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so that's it for this week guys um, hopefully next week the doctor might land somewhere warmer but as we've seen multiple times it's not always going to work is it also the episode's called the Ice Warriors so yeah, yeah that, that, that was you know, like, if that doesn't give it away I don't know I, I refer to these tr- this trio of stories like so the Tomb of the Cybermen the Abomin Snowmen and the Ice Warriors as the Winter Saga <laughs> <laughs> But shall we, we'll see if it's a complete, you know, like, is it as on the nose as the Tomb of the Cybermen or is it completely different? <laughs> um, but anyway, next week, guys, we shall find out. So until then, bye. Bye.